Brothers and sisters, let us begin with a word of prayer. Holy and precious God, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be holy and pleasing to you. And let us go from this space understanding the new creation that you continue to build within us, that we are a part of the new creation of this world, finding ways in which you can better be shown, seen, and working all throughout our lives. And these things we pray and all God's people said. Amen. amen and amen. Church, I am glad to see you today. If I have not met you, my name is Stefan Margus and I'm one of the pastors here at Front Street. I would love to introduce myself after the service if you would be so kind as to come and find me. I should normally be found at the back. Oh, but I think it's important that you know me, even if you've known my name for a couple of years now that I've been serving here. I think it's important that you continue to learn about who I am. And so just as a, a little bit about me, this may seem a little bit more resume information, but I think it's still interesting. Um, I graduated from Auburn University as my undergraduate, War Eagle, and we might even have a chance now that Nick Saban has retired. We'll see. <laughs> who knows? I also graduated from Duke Divinity School. That's my master's, my master's in divinity. Fancy little thing. I'm, I'm proud of both of those degrees and proud of both of those colleges. Now, why I find that interesting is my second fact. If you didn't know uh, Tim Cook, and if you've never heard that name, I imagine most of you have an iPhone in your pocket right now. Tim Cook is the CEO of Apple, who makes these fancy little phones in our pockets. That person, that Tim Cook, it just so happens that he also graduated from Auburn, an undergraduate in engineering, and then went to Duke to get his MBA. Funny enough, don't you find that interesting? Tim Cook went to Auburn and Duke, and so did I. <laughs> now, Tim Cook has certainly left an impression on the world, and young Stefan has always hoped that he would. In fact, when I started at Auburn, I was going to finish with an engineering degree. I didn't quite make it. That's okay. I'm in a good place doing wonderful things. And yet I felt as though I had this trajectory of going through Auburn and then to Duke to get my MBA that I too would become the next CEO of Apple, making an impression on the world. But here I am doing even greater things, and I truly believe that. I'm thankful for all of you that have been a part of this. Now, making an impression on the world, that's something that I imagine all of us have wanted to do in our lives, maybe more so when we were younger, maybe more so in the middle of our life. We've wanted to make an impression on the world. A show of hands, has anybody not wanted to make an impression on the world or even their world? I imagine all of you have hoped to make an impression, even on the people in your life, the family that you gather around, making an impression is a part of the nature of who we are as people. We are built to be a little bit prideful in a positive sense that we are proud of the work that we do and we want to be able to share and have value amongst the lives of other people around us. That's natural. It's normal for us. But we live in an interesting world. I think it's pretty interesting because the way in which we find our way to greatness often comes, and especially in our culture today, to stand out, the first thing you must do is stand in, or rather fit in. In order to stand out and to be great, sometimes you have to first stand in and be just 
good. To be a great employee, first you have to be a good employee. To be a great student, you must be a good student first. To be a great friend, you must be a good friend. To be a great Christian, sometimes you have to start with just being a good Christian. To stand in is often the first barrier to standing out. That little bit of goal, that inspiration, that ego within ourselves, the pride that builds up in us that we want to stand out, to make that impression first comes with standing in. The interesting thing about that, and for us as church, we understand well that that's a little bit counterintuitive to who we're created to be. For many of us in the world, we know this well, and probably even for many of you, standing in, fitting in, conforming to the ways of the world and the people around us is not so easy. It's not so natural for us. And it's true for us as Christians, even we claim as well that from the very beginning, as God created us each individually to be unique Christians, unique people, unique beings in the world. We know that fitting in is not always exactly the thing that we are supposed to do. And yet, the world tells us that standing in, fitting in, is the first thing to standing out. And so if you don't stand in, then you won't stand out. It happens all throughout our culture, in workplaces, in our social settings, and, and even in the church. If you're not standing in, you'll never stand out. In fact, if you don't stand in, more than likely you'll stand outside. That's true in many places. And I say this because where we've built ourselves to now in this moment in history, it's happened a few other times before, but especially now there is such a strong dichotomy between this or that, between their way and my way, between old and new. This generation gap that we exist within now, where an older generation and a younger generation have such a hard time finding common ground, finding words to share between them, finding an understanding that both of them hold goodness within them and hope for the world, and yet it doesn't seem as though often they can come in agreement of the way to do that. I find that difficult, don't you? I mean, whatever side you may feel as though you were on, whether you're in an old way of understanding or a new way of understanding, it has nothing to do with your age, and yet we see this dichotomy, we see this fight, we see this difference between us that seems as bright as a light bulb, as long-standing as a candle, and I hope that you're wondering, what do we do? Where do we go? What will happen? And who will win? But that question, I think it's maybe not the right question. Because as I see this, I wonder, and we have history within us and within the church to understand a little bit what it looks like, and I hope and I pray this is not true for us. Will we wander through the wilderness of life trying to figure out where we're supposed to go for maybe 40 years on end as the Israelites did to the point where the old generation passes away and never makes it into the promised land or that new generation as they go in not remembering the faults that have gone on and make the same mistakes over and over and over again. If that's our trajectory as a people, then uh, gosh, I, I hope and I pray that this is at least one of those times we can say we are a different people than the people of the Bible. 
that we can find another way, that we can find a middle ground, that we can find commonality between us. And that's why we're here. That's why we're here, church, in this series as we continue asking the question, why? Why church? Why God? Why Methodist church? So that we can wrestle with the understanding, the purpose that we hold for these things in our lives and our relation to them. This question, why, it becomes pretty powerful to us as we continue to wrestle with it. And I hope it already has for you. And so I'll pray and I'll ask that as we continue to walk forward that we do so with a little bit of curiosity with a little bit of openness, and with a lot of faith and a lot of hope. For today, we continue our series, Let's Be Honest About Church. Are you ready? You've already read the title in here. Maybe you saw the pamphlet we handed out back in December about this series and the titles that were coming up, the topics that we discuss, and you read already or you hear the words now for the first time that I say, church is old. And you gruff and you pull back and you push against that idea in any sense of the word. Whether you've heard it from someone else in your life. Maybe you've heard it from strangers on the internet. Maybe you've just imagined that people are saying that all over the place. They're not here with us so they must think that church is old. That church is old hat or old news or old ways or old faces. All of these things we think about church being old and that hurtful phrase that we hear. Whether someone says it directly or not, church is old doesn't sound too good. But it's interesting to me, if you'll just imagine for a moment, that it's not just the people outside the church that are saying church is old. Now, it's somewhat surprising to me from time to time I hear phrases that also remark on that it's people within the church that also recognize that church is old. It's an interesting phrase that I hear very often. Ray, I imagine, hears often as well. Maybe even you have heard it or maybe you've said it. How will we save the church? How will the church continue on? How will the church keep going? Well, if only the church had more young people, that would fix all of our problems. In that, even though we don't say it and we may not recognize it consciously, there's some acknowledgement in there, is there not? That the church is old. How do we reconcile that? There's an understanding within us, isn't there? And yet there's other phrases that we hide behind. One of my favorites that I hold strongly to, I just want us to understand fully when we say it, we hide behind this phrase that church may be old in a number of ways, but in the ways of practice and the ways of uh, of, uh, practices that we have and Things that we do, church is steeped deeply in tradition. That's the word that we replace with old. Church may be old in some sense, but church is traditioned. It has traditions that are strong within it. It's interesting to me, the definition of tradition. It's the transmission of or the passing on of practices and beliefs from one generation to the next. But what happens when those transmissions Don't happen. What happens when those beliefs and those practices don't get passed on? Is it still tradition? There's an interesting story I heard a little while ago. 
It's about a brisket. Do you like brisket? Do you have a family recipe for brisket? There was this young couple that was getting married, and it was about time for that family recipe, the family brisket recipe, to be passed on to the next generation. And so that wonderful piece of paper that had been held onto for a number of years was finally given over to that young new couple to share with the next generation to come this beautiful recipe of a brisket that they had held onto for 50, 60, 70 years, maybe even longer. Nobody could quite remember. And, and so this, this couple, they got together at their holiday meal the next time, and they said, let's make that brisket. And they began to do that, to prep the spices, to get the seasonings together, to uh, pour all the sides, whatever they might be, ready in dishes to go for the day of, and they finally get to the moment of preparing the brisket, and one of the first instructions in there is to, to take the brisket, to put it on a cutting board, and to take off four inches off of one end and discard it. Huh. Now, if you're like me and you like brisket as much as I do, any type of brisket, especially the burnt ends, you don't get rid of that. Instead, that recipe said take those four inches and discard it and move on with the rest of the recipe. That was surprising, odd to this young couple as they continued to cook. And, and finally, after a few times of making this recipe, they decided to ask the question to their parents, why do you cut off those four inches of that brisket in order to make this meal that we've been making for years and years and years? And the mother, who had been making it for years before, said, that's how we've always done it. Go ask your grandmother. And so the young woman and man, they went and they asked their grandmother. And the grandmother uh, began to answer and, and thought about it for a minute and, and said, that's how we've always done it. Go ask your great-grandmother. And so she finally went and asked her great-grandmother who was still living and, and doing well. And then they went and asked that question, why do we cut off the four inches of the brisket in order for this family meal to be cooked? And the, the great-grandmother, she laughed she laughed after having the memory come back to her of writing that recipe years and years and years ago and said, when I was growing up making this recipe, my pan was never big enough to fit the whole brisket. <laughs> so we had to cut off some of it in order for it to fit in the pan. Brothers and sisters, if you hear anything from me that says that we should get rid of tradition, that's not it. But I don't want us to get rid of the four inches of tradition on the side that we often forget. That is, as we pass tradition on from one generation to the next, we need to make sure that we're passing on those practices and those beliefs. Because if we don't do that, then it's really not a tradition. It's really just my way and everyone else's way. And how we do that is important. Why is important. Can I tell you something about worship as we gather here in this space? Worship is magical, but worship is not magic. Worship is magical, but worship is not magic. If someone was to come into this space having never been to a church before, having never known God, having never opened the Bible, and they sang our songs, and they read our prayers, and they listened to the wonderful preachers of the pastors that the church has, there is no guarantee that that person would gain faith. The things that we do in worship do not mean that we will automatically have that faith and that understanding and that belief. Worship is magical, but it's not magic. 
You see, it comes with more than just these practices. It comes with an understanding. It comes with, in this passing of tradition, this wealth of knowledge that continues with it. You can't hack off four inches of that brisket of knowledge of faith and hand it on to the next person and expect them to know why all of that has occurred. Now, in this, there's good news and there's bad news. Can I give you the bad news first? Because there are people in this world that are asking the question, why church? There are people who are earnestly seeking to understand why church should be of value to them. And they may come to you, and they may already have come to you and ask that question, why church? Why do you go to church? Why do you love church? Why do you keep going back? Why is church important to you? And here's the bad news is that they are not asking you to make a response for the entire church at large. Worse than that, they are asking just you. Why is church important to just you? Why do just you go to church? Why do you love church? When was the last time you answered that question? I hope and I pray that you continue to think about why church matters to you, why you are here, that someone may come along and ask that question, and you don't have to give a rebuttal about how the church has practiced through years and decades and and through all the different traditions that we do hold. You don't have to give all of that, but if you give your earnest, your honest, your loving answer of why church matters to you, That why carries into the practices that we all participate in, in a powerful way. No longer is it just a song, but it's a song that points to. No longer is it just scripture, but it's scripture that opens up. No longer is it sermons that are just pleasant to listen to, but it's a sermon that calls you to something bigger. All of this why is what we wrestle with, church, so that we can continue to find ways in which we pass on our tradition from one generation to the next. And the good news This is the good news to the answer to church being old. Because what I want you to walk away from today, whether you are two years old worshiping in in church uh, on the other side of these walls, whether you are on your way to 92 or even past that, everything in between, I want you to understand how young you are. I want to take years off of your life in this moment for just a moment. Will you allow me to try? Now remember, church, Worship is magical, not magic. Do you know how old God is? Some of you, as you're thinking about that answer, you think, well, God is older than the universe from the very beginning of time. God is even older than that well before. From the the beginning, whatever the beginning is, and even before the beginning. So God is, is older than it all. And yet, if we continue that thought, we can understand that God also will exist after this world ends. God will also exist after this universe ends. That in the finite time that all of this that we walk in exists, that God will be long after that. So you might imagine then that God is eternally young. God is still on the brink 
of discovery in this world. God is still building within it the newness of all that is around us. God is continuing to make new creations. And, and brothers and sisters, if you are a part of this faith and this tradition and this belief that God is working in your life, that you are beloved by God, don't you know what comes after? The next things after us, though we wait for it, though we we don't rush to it. We know that it is eternity. And if it's eternity, well, then we're pretty young. This finite life that we live within right now means that we're just getting started. If life in eternity continues in us, if eternity is a part of who we are, then church is not very old. Church is very young. A church is filled with young people, young at heart, young in spirit, and even young in body. We understand in the resurrection that not only our spirits will be taken up, but our bodies as well. And if our bodies can withstand eternity after this, then they can withstand today. Though we may be creaking, though we may be aching, yet still eternity is a part of who we are. We are eternally young in that way. What good news there is. We hear Jesus in these moments responding to the people saying, you've heard it in ancient times, don't swear falsely, but hold your oaths, hold your truths, Hold to the vows that you set forth. And Jesus says, but I tell you. This is saying not the old way that you've done. And don't start a new way, but just get to the core of what you are saying. If you say yes to something, just mean yes. If you say no, just mean no. And let whatever happens allow you to say yes again allow you to say no anew, allow you to move on from one place in life to the next. Don't be so staunch in one way, whether it's old or whether it's new, that you can't be flexible enough to move with me, with Jesus, with the Holy Spirit that continues on. I don't think church is that old. I think church is pretty young. We've got a lot of learning. We've got a lot to do, so let's get to it. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen.